0: Thank Roland, James. It's great to be with you this evening. And um, yeah, we're going to continue in our Romans series, as you know. And uh, as you know, I've also only got 25 minutes, so I've cut out my intro, and we're just going to dive right in there. So this, uh, this week, we start in Romans 9, which actually is the beginning of a new kind of literary unit in Romans. So from almost one up to eight, Paul's been developing this theme of the gospel and what it is and what it means. And and then in Romans nine through to Romans eleven for three chapters, he he kinda changes tack a little bit and seems to tackle a slightly different issue. And and there's a really there's a reason for that. We're gonna talk a bit about that in a moment. But this These next two weeks that we're going to preach on tonight and, and next week, which Roland's going to pick up, they form a complete unit in the scriptures. It's called a chiasm. It means that everything that you read in between Romans 9 and Romans 11, you need to understand within Romans 9 and 11 and not pull it out of there by itself. And I'm going to do my best to kind of explain what's happening In Romans 9 as we as we go along so what's happened up until this point Paul's been talking about the gospel and last week Joe preached in Romans chapter 8 and there's some fantastic promises in Romans chapter 8 that we love to claim as Christians that's a really great space for us as Christians to rest in and you see the goodness of God kind of promised out and poured out towards us the problem is what that did when Paul wrote the letter is it caused a lot of concerns to rise up into the Roman church that he was writing into Right, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But what you need to know, just as a bit of background going in, is that inside the Roman church, for reasons I don't have time to explain to you, right, but there was a bit of a conflict that existed between those people that were Jewish and came to faith in Christ, and those people that were not Jewish that came to faith in Christ. We call them Gentiles, and you'll see Paul refer to these Gentile believers as we're gonna read the chapter together. They they, they had a bit of a wrestle with one another and the way in which they understood the gospel and the way in which the gospel should be working together, and so this section Paul begins to address some of these issues that have cropped up between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Right, and so we're going we're to dig into Romans 9 tonight, and uh, my hope is that as we do that, we're going we're to understand what Paul has written to us, because it's a little bit of a complex chapter. So for those of you who are visiting with us tonight, you're going to get a bit of a deep dive into some theology. So just to prep you uh, for that, we're going to try and follow his arguments, and uh, my hope is that as you, we do that together, God is going to be more fully revealed to us. We're going to get a bigger, broader picture of who God is, and that's going to be wonderful for us. So we're going to read it together and I'd love you if you've got a Bible to pull it out. Um, When we read Romans 9 together, it's going to be up on the screen, but after that as we begin to unpack it, it's going to be really helpful if you've got it there to just reference as we talk through. So if you've got a phone with an app or you've got an actual Bible, won't you like just grab it out there, put it over to Romans chapter 9 and uh, we're going to read through it together. I'll give you a moment just to do that so I don't jump ahead of you. Let's dig into Romans 9. Okay, we're gonna read from Romans chapter nine from verse one. Three more seconds two. Alright, let's go. Paul starts, and he says this, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I I wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews, right? He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham are counted as his offspring, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that not all the children of the flesh who are the children of, it is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he has said in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's Romans chapter 9, from 1 to 29, right? It's most of it. I actually left out the last four verses because those kind of tie more directly into the arguments that Paul picks up going into chapter 10. And I, and I know as we read that, I, I even heard it as I was reading it, it's pretty intense, it's pretty heavy, it's sometimes a little bit difficult to follow. But there is a wealth of treasure in there. My hope is that as we break it down into the four key pieces that Paul uses in this space, that we're going to be able to see a little bit of that together. And, and I trust as we do that, that God's going to reveal Himself to us in a way that, that might be a little bit uncomfortable at times but I think ultimately reveals to us a part of who God is. And as we see God in a fuller way, and as we see a right picture of Him, I believe we become better equipped to follow Him in love and obedience. So that's what we're going to try and do tonight. And this is where it's going to be really helpful if you've got your Bible with you to just follow along as we go. I'm going to start in, in the first part of the four parts of Romans chapter 9. I've kind of called the problem right? And, and this, this section raises the, the question for the rest of Romans chapter 9, right? And, and the question is this, can the promises of God be trusted? That's why Paul begins to write this, and you'll see he says it in verse 6. He says this, he says, has the Word of God failed? Although he uses it in, in a more rhetorical device, he says, for it's not as though the Word of God has failed. This, this question that we probably wouldn't understand why it even exists, when Paul wrote this letter, this was immediately the question that sprang to mind in the hearts of those who are Jewish believers that were sitting in the Roman church. Because in Romans 8, where Paul begins to tell us about the wonderful promises that exist for us now in Christ, and in the in verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 9, as he declares those promises again as being the the inheritance of the jewish people what begins to happen in the jewish people for the jewish believers is is the problem is that they're concerned they are concerned that those promises that are their inheritance have now been given to others that the gentiles have been led in to the the promises that they've been given for instance in romans 8 we're told that as believers we are given the spirit that we become inheritors of the resurrection, that there is adoption for us in Christ, that there is the glory of God that we get to receive, that the redemption that comes as our sins are forgiven is ours in Christ. There are so many, that's just five, just to give you an example. But all of those promises were God's promises to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. That's their inheritance. And Paul has just said, well, it's not just yours anymore, it also belongs to the Gentiles. That's beginning to upset them a little bit, but the problem actually goes a little bit deeper. It's not just that their inheritance is being given over to someone else, and Paul alludes to this in verses two and three. He says, you need to know that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, and I wish that I could even be cut off from Christ and cursed for the sake of my brothers, for the sake of my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The implication is because they were failing to attain salvation they were failing to attain salvation and so what's going on here is because the majority of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah that begins to call into question the validity of God's promises to the Jewish people if Jesus is the Messiah that they've all been waiting for and 90% of them don't embrace him has God really been faithful this is the question that's now been beginning to raise, and, and because those promises have now been given to the Gentiles, it raises a bigger question. Has God disinherited the Jews from their promise because of their faithlessness and given those promises over to the Gentiles? Now, as we sit here, I'm guessing almost all of us are probably Gentile believers. That might not seem like the biggest problem in the world, But it really is because if God can change his mind, if he can choose to disinherit a people from his promises, then who's to say he won't do that to us if we displease him? If God can really change his mind, how can we really trust him or trust the promises that he gives to us? And so without most of us even realizing it, that's the question that Romans 8 has created to those that come from a Jewish background. And so it's a serious question that Paul now spends the rest of Romans chapter 9 beginning to answer that question for us, right? And so in verses 4 and 5, he reaffirms the assertion that those promises that we've read about in chapter 8 do still belong to the Jewish people, right? And you'll see he lists them out there for us in verses 4 and 5. And then he, so then he sets this question, can the promises of God be trusted? Has the Word of God failed? He says no, and now he's gonna go about to prove it. Does that make sense, right? That's what he set up for us in the first quarter of Romans 9. So the next thing he then does, and this is the second part of Romans 9, is he now begins to define the scope of what those promises were, right? When God made those promises to Israel that some think might have failed, what was actually the scope of those promises? How did God give them? To who did they apply and you need to recognize as we go through the rest of the chapter, there's going to be a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. Because Paul is attempting to prove that God has always operated in this way, that God's word hasn't failed, that God's promise is still true, and it has always been in this way. And so he's going to argue from the Old Testament a lot. In fact, in, throughout Romans, two-thirds of the Old Testament quotations occur in Romans 9 to 11. Right? This is a large theme that Paul goes into. now, And you also notice that that's the way in which he proves this is going to progress through the Old Testament. So as we read it, you're going to see his quotations start at the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis and Exodus, and then they're going to move along, and they're going to go into the prophets and into the later prophets. He's trying to show us that all of the Old Testament ultimately argues for this point that he's going to make, that God's promises haven't changed. So the first thing he does is to address the understanding of who God's original promise was meant to apply to. Who is Israel? Who is the nation of Israel? Is it the whole Jewish nation, or is it some subset of them? Does salvation come simply by belonging to this people group? Because if that's the case, and that's what the Jews assumed at the time, if that's the case, then the gospel of faith that Paul has been preaching is in real jeopardy, because those two things can't be the same. You can't have access to, to salvation by faith and also only have access to salvation because you were born a Jew. Those two things aren't compatible. And so he's now got to explain how this fits into God's um, promise that has always been the case. And so he begins this argument with two stories from the Old Testament, and both of those stories have two quotations. The first is a story about Abraham and Sarah. Remember, Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith. He's the man that God calls and says, "Go into this place and I will make you a nation." Right? And so this, this story comes out of Genesis 21:12, and Genesis 18,10 and 14, you can write that down and go back and read it if you're not familiar with the story. But in this story, God promises Abraham a son. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And through this son, you will have descendants as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. And that's, that's wonderful. Abraham's like, that's fantastic. Well, if you know the story, 10 years later, Abraham still doesn't have any kids. Right, so he and, he and Sarah decide, look, they're going to DIY a bit of a situation here and sort this problem out because God has promised that we need to make something happen. And so uh, Sarah decides, listen, Abraham, why don't you take Hagar, my, my slave? Why don't you sleep with her? And then God will give you a son through her because she was barren. And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar and they get a son called Ishmael. And they're like, right, now we've got a son and God's promise can be fulfilled. And then God comes back to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you need to understand Ishmael is not the son through whom this promise is going to be fulfilled, but I'm going to give you and Sarah a son, right? You're going to have a child of your own, and that's the child Isaac. Remember, again, if you read, that's Genesis 21. And so Paul shares the story because he's using the story to, sh- to show us that not all of the people of Abraham are the nation of Israel. See, the, the descendants of Ishmael are never counted as a part of the Jewish people. It's only the sons of Isaac. The descendants of Isaac. So that's the first part of his story. In fact, Paul, what Paul's trying to show is that it's not all of Abraham's descendants, not all of those who come from Abraham. It's actually only half. And so he develops this idea with a second story that comes from a generation later. He looks at Abraham's son, Isaac, the promised son, right? And he talks about Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Now, they also have two children. You might remember this. Remember Sunday school, right? Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac, they're twins, and they're born almost at the same time, but Esau was born slightly before Jacob. That makes him the firstborn child and the primary heir in Jewish culture. But before they were born, God comes to Rebekah as she is praying, and he says to her that the older son, Esau, will serve the younger, and the younger son, Jacob, will be stronger than the older paul paul shares the story and then he emphasizes it by quoting from malachi with this interesting phrase jacob i loved but esau i hated it's a phrase that occurs in the beginning of the book of malachi and and when it's used there it's not meant in the terms of emotion of love and hate it's it's meant to almost symbolize the idea jacob i chose but esau i didn't choose right we don't have time to dig into that anymore but you can chat to me afterwards if you want right paul's point in using the story Is he's trying to say that not only are not all of Abraham's descendants part of God's people, but the ones that are weren't didn't earn their way there. But before the sons were even born, God made a choice, and He says it's going to be these, the sons. It's going to be um, Jacob, Jacob's descendants that are going to be my people and Esau's descendants are not going to be. So already there was a subset because it had to come out of Isaac, not out of Ishmael. Now there's a second subset. It's going to come from Jacob, but not Esau. If you remember in Genesis, the sons of Esau become the Edomites, not the Israelites. right. So Paul, this this is his first argument that he uses to help people understand that God's promises haven't changed. He shows that the From the Old Testament, that is not the natural descent from Abraham, nor the right keeping of the law that determines who the true people of God are going to be. Rather, it's that God chose sovereignly in His grace to choose people through history to work through, to bring salvation to humanity. So the problem he is beginning to address here is that the fact that many Jews have not believed in Christ, finding themselves outside of salvation, is not inconsistent with what God has always said is going to be the case. God has always said it's only going to be a subset of Israel that was going to be saved, not the whole of the descendants of Abraham. And that subset has actually been chosen by God himself. Are you with me so far? Okay, great, here we go. So then he moves into the third part, which is actually a bit of a digression, because you might be with me, but you might still be feeling a little bit uneasy. Maybe you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe this idea makes you a little bit skeptical because it doesn't feel right. Well, that's what Paul anticipates in us, right? He anticipates that in his readers. He knows that the idea of God being sovereign and exercising his will in the lives of people can make us feel uncomfortable. And so in this third section, he actually takes a bit of a digression from his primary argument to, to deal with that issue that's being raised in us, that concern that's coming up in our heart. And he does this again in two parts. First, he does it by addressing the question of justice, which he which he begins by posing this rhetorical question. Is God unjust to make choices without consulting the people those choices affect? That's the question he poses, and his immediate answer is no. And so now again, he's gonna justify this position by arguing from the Old Testament. And he again uses two quotations to do that, showing that both the mercy and the judgment of God come sovereignly from God. So the first point, he argues from... Exodus chapter 33, and if you remember Exodus chapter 33, this is the point where God's got a little bit fed up with the Israelites, and uh, God has said to him, look, I can't bear to stay with you any longer because you're such a sinful people. I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and he's going to lead you into the promised land. And so Moses and the people have said, Lord, if you don't lead us, then we're not going to go. And the Lord relents, and he says, okay, I will go with you. And then Moses said, Lord, won't you allow me to see you? And the Lord says to Moses, You know what, Moses, I will allow you to see, but I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm gonna cover you with my hand and I'm gonna pass by you. And after I pass by you, I'm gonna remove my hand and you're gonna be able to turn and see my back. But no one can see my face and live. And it's in this space that he says that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's the quote that Paul uses. The mercy that God is showing Moses is to protect him from the greatness of the glory of himself so that Moses is both able to see God, which is an incredible blessing, and to not die as the result of that. It's God's mercy being exercised against Moses. But then the second quotation that Paul uses illustrates the other side of God's character. And in Exodus chapter 9, 16, it's, it's an interaction between Moses and God through Moses and Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. and, And God is saying to Pharaoh, he says, By now I could have reached out my hand and struck you and your people with a pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have absolutely destroyed all of you, had I so chosen Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But for this purpose I've raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. And yet you still go exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that God does is he does of his own sovereign free will to demonstrate the greatness of his power. And even there, he's actually also showing mercy against Pharaoh, which he explains, I could have, I could have wiped you all out, but I haven't. He's hardened Pharaoh's heart to resist his will and his desires in order to achieve his own ends and desires. Paul's point is that neither God's mercy nor His judgment are meted out because of what humans decide to do or would desire. And he's saying this has always been God's way. This is how God operates. But I, I know for many of you, for myself included, that answer still feels a little bit insufficient. It doesn't really seem to justify the issue because we battle as people to make that work logically. How can God find fault with people if He's the one who hardens their heart toward Him? Right, that, that still feels difficult for us to stomach. And so Paul actually begins to carry this argument further. But let me say this as an introduction to this idea. Many people, myself included, try and do our best to understand how God can do that and remain consistent in Himself. How God can harden someone's heart Hold that against him and still be consistent in who he is as God. That's one of the key points of distinction between the theological positions of Calvinism and Arminianism. If you want to talk about that, I'll be around afterwards. We can talk about it. We can talk about it for hours if you want. But when Paul writes this in Romans 9, he doesn't engage in the logic of this argument, he leaves the logic aside. For him, it's not about the logic of the argument. He doesn't attempt to explain how it works, only that it is the fact. That it, it does happen, and that God is justified in acting in this way. That's his point. And so he, he says to us, in, in, in a manner that's very similar to Job's interaction with God. If you remember the Old Testament, where Job comes before the Lord, right? And Paul says to us, who are you? Who are you to question God? Who are you as a human to hold God to account? Remember in the book of Job, for the whole book of Job, Job is wrestling. God, why has this stuff happened to me? God, you must appear to me. You must explain this stuff to me. Lord, Lord I know that I'm righteous before you. You need to tell me what's going on and explain what's going on. And eventually, God appears before Job. And Job's like, Yes, I'm finally going to be vindicated. And what does God say to him? Job, where were you when I made the world? Tell me if you can, Job. Job, how does the sun rise in the east and set in the west? Do you know? And every time God asks Job a question, Job falls on his face and and humbles himself before God because he recognizes he cannot stand in the presence of God. Paul asks us the same question. Who are we as people to question God, our creator, to try and hold him to account? And so to prove this point, he quotes Isaiah using the analogy of someone who makes pottery. And he says, can that which is created really question the one that creates it? or the purpose for which it's been made. In fact, he closes this argument with, he says, what if God, what if it's true that God has created some people who are ultimately destined for destruction and he has endured the evil of their lives with so much patience, so that the display of his mercy towards those who are saved magnifies his own greatness and glory. And even in fact is so great that it creates glory for those that he chooses to save. What if that's actually what God has decided to do? Who are you to speak against Him? And that's how he closes that discussion. That might leave you a little bit uncomfortable. I recognize that. We can, we can chat a bit about that afterwards, right? But that's Paul's digression. He says, I know this seems morally objectionable, but you need to recognize God is bigger than you. And you don't actually have the right to question him. And then he begins to apply that straight back into the question of the problem of the faithfulness of God's Word. We get to the fourth part of Romans 9, which is the implication from verses 24 to 29. And Paul says the implication of all of this is that true Israel includes some of ancestral Israel, and it also includes new Gentile believers in the people of God. God's promises to Israel have not failed because the Gentiles inherited them. They haven't failed because God always intended that the Gentiles would receive His salvation and become a part of His people. That was always God's intention. And His promises haven't failed because God always knew that not all of Israel would receive His salvation and ultimately be saved. And so in closing this section, He sets out to prove this point again with two more quotations, this time from Hosea and from Isaiah. And in his first quotation, Paul argues from Hosea's prophecy in Hosea 2.23 and one ten, And he says, those who were not considered God's people will now become God's people. That's a really significant statement. And originally, Hosea wrote that prophecy, and God was speaking about the northern tribes of Israel. When Israel split as a nation into the north and the south, and God writes this prophecy to talk about the ten tribes being incorporated back in. But Paul takes that prophecy, and he applies it to the Gentiles. An idea that's not foreign through the rest of the prophets. It happens in other places, but I think Paul uses this particular quotation because of the strength of the language that we find here. To be described as the people of God or the sons of God is one of the highest descriptions that the people of Israel had. They were God's people. They were His chosen people. They were the inheritors and the heirs of His promises. And Paul applies that and he says that is true of the Gentiles. It has always been true. God has always designed to take people who were not his people and to make them his people. Then his second quotation addresses the second part of the problem that was raised at the beginning. Many Jews are failing to attain the salvation of Christ the Messiah. And so he quotes from Isaiah and he cites two examples of what is known as the remnant of Israel. It's this idea, this theme that began to be developed in the later prophecies throughout the nation of Israel's history, that not all of Israel would ultimately be saved, that though the nation was as numerous as the stars in the sky, only a small minority would actually be saved. Paul says that idea is finding its expressed reality in the general Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that's not the end of that story with respect to the Jewish people, which is why Romans nine to 11 is a chiasm and a literary unit. And Roland's gonna flesh that out next week, right? So stick around for that. But again, in both the addition of the Gentiles and in the seeming rejection of the Jews, Paul's point is that the gospel, the word of God hasn't failed. God has remained true to his promises and God's people can continue to trust in him. That's what Romans nine is all about in a nutshell, right? What can we take away very quickly in closing? What about this wonderful story of Israel and the Gentiles? What about it affects us today, has meaning for us today? I think first and foremost, let's take away Paul's main points, that the word of God hasn't failed and the word of God never fails. Everything that God has done and is doing, Paul argues is perfectly consistent with what he has always said he will do. Everything that God has promised to do Therefore, God and His Word can be trusted. Secondly, I think we can learn, much like the Jewish believers in Rome, that what we think we know about God is sometimes wrong. Sometimes we don't have it all together. Sometimes our picture of God is too small, and God is bigger than us and broader than us, and despite our best efforts, we don't always have it right. And so there's a caution for us, much as there was a caution for them that we need to be careful in judging others because that's what was happening. The people within the church are saying, you're not being a proper Christian because you're not doing X, Y, or Z. We need to be careful about that, but we should know that we can find truth through God's word, and we're called to search for it there. Thirdly, I think it's important that we learn to rest in the sovereignty of God We're here together tonight, and you're a part of God's people if you know Jesus and have chosen to follow him because God sovereignly desired for you to be here and for you to be a part of his people. And before you were born, he knew you, he formed you, he called you, and he knows everything about you. And that's a beautiful thing. We can rest. We don't always understand that. And trust me, I'm a five-point I believe in free will, and I know that we have free will, and and that affects how we live our lives. But there is a sovereignty in God that is bigger than what we understand. And and it's it's a place of peace for me to know that God already knows, and God has gone before, and I'm here because God has sovereignly ordained this of me. Finally, I think we can take away that sometimes God might act in a way that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes God might act in in ways that we don't understand. And we can and and should trust in His righteousness and His justice to act in ways that are always consistent with who He is, even when we don't understand it. This side of eternity, we're never fully going to know God. That's just the way it's going to be. His ways will always be above our ways and His thoughts will always be above our thoughts. But no matter what happens, God will always be true to Himself and what He has revealed of Himself to us. And, and I take real comfort in knowing that. So we're going to bring our time to a close. I hope I've managed to keep it down to 25 to 30 minutes. All right, and Tam, if you and the team can come up. Uh, we're going to do baptisms after a couple of songs of worship. So ladies who are getting baptized, if you'd be so kind as to just follow the team up and go hide behind in the rooms there so you can begin to get changed and you have the time that you need. And uh, if what I've said tonight or what we've read in Romans 9 has been confusing for you or it's raised questions in your heart, after the baptisms and the worship, I'll be around, the, uh, some of the other pastors will be around. If you want to come ask deep theological questions, we'd be more than happy to field them. Sam, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Why don't you stand and join with us as we just sing of the Lord of Lords, how sovereign He is.